place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon. Beyond the rain. Hey everyone, welcome back to Every Version Ever. My name is Jonathan North, and today we'll be starting a brand new series focusing on L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. Or maybe more specifically, the work of L. Frank Baum, because he wrote a lot of books set in Oz, and many film adaptations don't limit themselves to just one story, so neither will I. But to begin with, I'll be joined by my friend Eli Sanza, and we'll be talking about the most famous, most iconic version of the original story, the 1939 MGM version of The Wizard of Oz. Now, despite what many people might think, this is actually not the original adaptation of the story. This is just the most famous adaptation that has ever been made. However, we will be getting to the original adaptation later in the series, or at least the earliest surviving adaptation, and Eli will be coming back for that as well. But for now, here's my conversation with Eli Sanza on the 1939 MGM musical. So I guess we'll start out with, have you read the book that this is based on? I did read the book, not as a child, but like later in my life. So I like, I checked it out just out of curiosity and just to see what, what it was like. And I liked the book just as much as I liked the movie. They were both so, some different things about the book from the movie, but they were both Mm-hmm. pretty much on the same level they're both really really good and uh, yeah the book is really amazing yeah i read the book when i was a kid i remember at the time i watched the movie i liked it but then after I read the book i was like you changed too many things because back then i was like a real stickler for movies being the same as books so for a while i was kind of not really upset with the movie but like I was, I was kind of like, I shouldn't have changed so many things. So I didn't like it quite as much for a little while. But then later I realized that it's fine if people change things from books. It's, it's somebody's own interpretation. So I, I'm, I feel a lot better now about it than I did when I was younger. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, ever since I watched the movie The Jungle Book, I, the, the Disney version, uh, I realized that, okay, well, if, if the movie is different from the book, it's not the worst thing in the world because that movie is really different from the book, and I love that movie. Yeah, I really like seeing how different people take the same source material and interpret it in completely different ways. Like, 
I'm doing with this series now and what I've been doing with my Wonderland Wednesday series or my Christmas Carol Countdown series, like I really like taking a look at one right. source material and seeing how all these different people looked at it and interpreted it and used it in completely different ways. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. So how old were you when you first saw this movie? Man, I must have been three or four years old, man. I, must have, I, I, I saw it like because, you know, you know, The Wizard of Oz used to come on annually on television, like, mm-hmm. every, like every holiday season. That was when I first was introduced to it, as were most people. Yeah, I saw it. I don't remember how old I was, but I was pretty young. And back then, we would check out movies from the library. And that's like, it might have been the only even TV that we watched back then. We'd just watch things we'd borrowed from the library. And I remember coming across this one in... It's I don't People nowadays are probably going to have no idea what I'm talking about. I don't even know how common this was in other libraries. But they had these giant books that they had cut out the covers of the VHSs on and they made them into pages that you could flip through and then you would take the card to the desk and then they would get the movie for you. So I loved going through to those giant books and flipping through all the laminated VHS cases and seeing what they had. I remember coming across The Wizard of Oz and I wanted to watch that and at the time mom was like, I don't know. I think the witch will be too scary for you guys. And I don't remember if we checked it out then or not, (laughs) but we did check it out eventually. And I remember we watched it and it, the witch didn't scare us. (laughs) We watched the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, the witch could easily scare people though, because like, frightening character. There's there's a lot of things about this movie that could and does scare some people, like the mm-hmm. monkeys. I I wouldn't be scared of them now, but watching it this time, I I paid attention more to the monkeys, and I could totally see them terrifying someone because of the sounds they were making and the way they were moving, and even just their faces, all that working together, it, it didn't scare me. But I can totally see someone seeing the flying monkeys and being horrified. Yeah, yeah. I I wasn't that much of a scared child, really, when it came to movies. I I wasn't like I didn't have nightmares about it, but I did really like scary movies, though, because I liked the thrill of them and I liked the creativity of like a flying monkey. That just I just liked mm-hmm. the idea of a flying monkey. It wasn't like the kind of thing that would uh, uh, send me running to bed under the covers. It was just a really fun kind of uh, experience. So just experience something like to be scared. I I appreciated the thrill of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't watch movies that would be considered scary movies. And I didn't get scared of much as a kid. Like, I was trying to think the other day if there was really any movies that scared me as a kid. And the ones that did, it was things that I don't think they were supposed to be scary. (laughs) It was just random (laughs) weird things that some kids get scared of. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, so none not things that you would expect that you would be scared of, like like no. the Wicked Witch. No. So between now and back when you were a kid, your feelings about the movie changed at all? Um, I would say slightly better because I already loved it as a kid, but I appreciate it way more as an adult. As do uh, most of the movies that I watch, I appreciate more as an adult. And but this one in particular, because it, I, a lot of fantasy films can seem corny when I get older and I rewatch them, but this one is still, I think, a masterpiece, even and when I watch it today, it's like it holds up so well. Yeah, I hadn't seen the movie in years. I don't remember when the last time I watched it was. Actually, I take that back. I do remember when the last time I watched it was. We watched it for a film class like two or three years ago in one of my last semesters in college. So uh. it's been a while since I've seen it but not as long as maybe I thought. Anyway, I watched it today and I was watching it more like, I feel like in the past couple of years since I started my YouTube channel, I feel like I look at movies a little bit differently. I'm, I look more at how well they're made, not just how entertained I am, I guess. So I noticed a lot more about this movie that I appreciated a lot more than I did even back when I watched it in the film class, because in the film class, I think they were really, he was really only looking at, I don't know. I don't want to say that that kind of class is sort of like looking into movies a little too deeply, but I think that's what it was doing. Like trying to find meanings that weren't there. And you know what I'm talking about? That kind of mentality of looking at movies. So it wasn't about technique at all. It was just, trying to find meaning in in movies and like some of that is valuable but i think he just he went a little too far for my taste i guess yeah yeah i don't like to overanalyze films because uh that if you do that it kind of goes beyond the intention of the filmmakers yeah. which whose who, who main job is entertaining people and that's what i think you should judge it by just its entertainment factor mm-hmm. so like I was saying, since I started the YouTube channel, I think I'm looking at movies more as how well they're made in addition to how entertaining they are and other things that I like about movies. Not in such a way that I'm overanalyzing them, but in the way that I feel like I'm noticing the artistry more than I would have a few years ago. So watching it today, it just really struck me how amazing everything was. Like, you don't think of movies back then as, like, being really masterfully created. Well, some movies are, but a lot of them, you look back and they're kind of cheesy now. They kind of have poorly designed sets, uh, dodgy special effects. Maybe the makeup isn't that great. But just about everything in this totally held up. Like, even locations, like looking at the landscapes and, like, in the wizard's castle and the witch's castle it just looked amazing and you could tell that a lot of it was a matte painting but i didn't care about that i thought the paintings looked gorgeous they were amazing they totally helped build the world oh yeah 
Yeah, totally. I, I'm not surprised that the production of that movie was so elaborate because MGM was the studio behind the movie and they are the biggest and, and they were the richest film studio uh, mm-hmm. at that period. Yeah, I, I need to watch more movies from that time period, especially ones that people talk about being classics that I've just never seen. Because I know they're out there. I just, I've never watched them. It would be fun to find some new, to me, movies that are really good from that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot of good stuff in the 1930s. That's so good. I fully support you looking for films that are like classics from the like golden age of film. Because there's a lot of great stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, my cousin Sarah has been trying to get me to watch some movies because, like, that's mostly what she watches. She watches almost exclusively old movies, and she's gotten me to watch a few movies that she really likes from, I guess, 30s, 40s, ones that I would have never thought to watch. Like, a few months ago, we watched one called, I think it was called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, starring an older Shirley Temple. And like, Shirley Temple to me is a tiny little child. So it was really interesting seeing her as a teenager (laughs) playing this really weird character. Yeah, I think with Shirley Temple as a child too, that that is kind of trippy to see. Mm -hmm. All kinds of things from those days that I wasn't expecting to like too. It's it's like, it's when you just discover these gems, when you're like, Mm -hmm. when you're trying to find like some old movies to watch, you won't believe how amazing some films are. And and it's exactly right. Like I wasn't expecting to like them. but I was expecting like Gold Diggers from 1933, but I liked that. I was expecting to like uh, Top Hats, but I liked that. And like it happened one night, I could go on. You know, mm-hmm. All kinds of great stuff. So with this movie, another thing, beyond the design aspects, I also noticed how well written it was. And that was another thing that I don't think I was really expecting to hold up so well. Like there's a lot of scenes in this movie that, are genuinely very funny. And a lot of the characters have great lines. Like I, I had completely forgotten that one of my favorite lines in the movie came from aunt M when she's, she wants to tell miss Gulch off and she yeah. for 23 years, I've been dying to tell you what I thought of you. And now, yeah. well, being a Christian woman, I can't say it. And she runs away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I about yeah, I love that that line. Yeah, it it is funny. Yeah, there was uh the scene from the Emerald City, the Wizards lines. The the Wizard played by uh, Frank Morgan. He had a lot of funny lines. Yeah, he also made me laugh. Like he said a lot of funny stuff. Yeah, every other thing that he said was something really weirdly hilarious like the way he was giving everyone their their awards like their placebo brains and hearts etc <laughs> just all of his lines yeah. Yeah. out was funny in a way that i would not have expected something from that time period to be like i should i shouldn't be surprised that people were funny back then but you just, I guess I just don't think of things like that. Like you don't think of people back then as being like genuinely funny. 
I don't know. It's kind yeah. of weird that I just I was not expecting the movie to be so witty in that way. Yeah, well, that that scene with the medallion—that's exactly the scene that I was thinking of when I uh, when I said it was funny. And and you're right. When you think about the the 1930s, you don't think of it as like a time period where there's like where that would like crack you up with their type of humor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are a lot of there's a lot of funny if you like look for them. They're like you can find them like at least one movie every year that can like crack you up from like the nineteen thirties forward. So it's like it's more to do with just is it dated or is it timeless? That's what all humor is. Mm. So one of the things that is notable about the movie is the cast and really i guess the main notable characters are the main five or six like even aunt m and uncle henry aren't that notable like i don't know who clara blandick and charlie grapewin i think that's how you pronounce their names i don't know them i don't know them from anything else but they're like iconic from this movie and probably this movie alone but the other characters especially judy garland they've gone on to be far more notable probably because of this movie judy garland especially she went on to do so many other things yeah definitely judy garland and this this was a like star making role for her because like the part where she sang uh, over the rainbow that was probably the most famous thing Judy Garland's ever done in her career. And mm. and she, yeah, she won like an Academy Juvenile Award in that year's Oscars uh, for starring in The Wizard of Oz and for starring in Babes in Arms, the two movies that came out in 1939 that she starred in. So that 1939 was a big year for her. And so it's, it's, especially because of, especially since the Over the Rainbow also won the Oscar for Best Song that year too. So it, that was definitely a star-making role. Yeah, that's another thing that I haven't really talked about yet. The music in this movie is, at this point, it's basically iconic, Um, especially Over the Rainbow, but there's a lot of other songs too. But there's something about Over the Rainbow that pretty much everybody just seems to love. And not now, but maybe in the time period where I had read the book and was thinking that the movie was subpar because they didn't match the book exactly. I think that's probably about the time where I was thinking that Over the Rainbow was like really overrated because like that song is everywhere. Like everybody wants to cover that song. I don't know. Maybe it's overexposure. to I didn't really like it for a time, but I think that I was not thinking about it in the context of this movie and watching it today, it brings something to the song that I think is lost when just a random person covers the song. Just the way she sang the song, the way it fit into the movie, and probably even the cinematography, as simple as it was in the scene, it just really made the song. And whatever my feelings were in the past, I, I don't feel that way anymore. It's a really great song in this movie. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Everything you just said, I agree with. It it fit into the movie so brilliantly. And it was sang so well by Judy Garland. She's astounding. And and also, it was like the perfect moment because to, to have the song because like you were just like getting to know all the characters. 
you, you got to know them. There was a few funny moments. And then we had the I Want song, which a lot of filmmakers call a, a pivotal moment in a lot of musicals because it's like it lets you inside the character's mind and it lets you know what they want and it makes you fall in love with them a little bit more when you when you hear the song too and so you root for them more because songs are powerful a lot of musicals would not be as good without the song also i do want to mention the soundtrack the soundtrack of the film is, is really amazing over the rainbow ding dong the witch is dead we're off to see the wizard if I only had a brain slash heart slash nerve, mm-hmm. Maryland Land of Oz. Yeah, the, the, the soundtrack of the film is, is a huge part of one of the reasons why it's so good. That's the same. I said the same thing about Star Wars. If without John Williams, the movie wouldn't have been as good. It, as good as it seems, the songs are just as important. It, it because they're like the, the sugar coating on the cake. They, yeah. they're, they're what make it so great. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that the other day because I don't know if I've said it before, but like I'm doing an internship with Rachel Wagner. So I'm basically her editor. She sent me an episode to edit about a movie called Interstellar 5555. And basically this movie, it's like a really weird science fiction fantasy story. There's no dialogue. The, the, The whole movie is set around a Daft Punk CD or an album, a Daft Punk album. And the album basically tells the story that's happening. I, I guess that's probably what got me thinking about this, but like a movie can be made or broken by the music that it chooses. And even though this movie was built around the album, if this was just the movie by itself and you did not hear the music, I don't think I would have liked it so much. Like it was an interesting story. It had good animation, but like, the music in conjunction with the animation is what made that movie so good. Yeah. I, I think that's what got me thinking about things like this. Like you need good music for a movie. And I think that's why a lot of movies these days fall a little bit short of what they could be. Like I, I always, I've, I've left more than one movie recently feeling like it's missing something. And I think probably what it's missing is an iconic soundtrack because so many movies have very similar sounding soundtracks. Like it's basically just the normal orchestral score. They don't have any like really standout themes. It's basically there to move the story along and that's it. But like with Star Wars, one of the things that makes Star Wars work is that the score, it's iconic. Like he has, he has written themes for every character, very recognizable themes and you don't really get yeah. that with many composers these days. Even the best composers, even ones that are like the go-to ones that I really enjoy the music, their themes are not as strong as John Williams' themes are. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I noticed that. It, it, you know, they did the same thing in the music for Bambi. Each, each character in the movie Bambi had their own theme, too. You can tell, I, like, it took me a while to notice that, but when I got older, I realized and it was, I saw the movie in a completely different way. And, and and actually, when you think about the Disney movies, and which are some of the most like consistent musicals, like the most famous Disney movies are usually the ones with music and the with, and with songs that you have like soundtracks of like Tangled and Frozen and Moana, like those movies like are 
way more memorable than non-musical Disney movies like Atlantis, Lost Empire, or Bolts, or those, are the, and, and it goes all the way back to, from Snow White to now. Yeah, I think the music, not just musicals, but like music in general in movies, that's what sticks in people's heads. And that's that's what makes them so much more memorable than a non-musical movie is because even if it's not an earworm type song, a lot of music can still get stuck in your head in subtler ways that you yeah. just keep remembering the music more than you remember even the scenes. And I think that's probably one of the things that really helped The Wizard of Oz become such a classic. Every song was extremely memorable and really gets stuck in your head in a good way and really keeps people coming back. Like the songs, even back when I was, I never really even thought about this, but back when I was thinking about the movie in a way that it was like, it's not as good as the book because they didn't follow the book like they should have. I still yeah. liked the music because we had a family friend who she she was from Canada, but she came and stayed with us for like three years. She got me into Disney music because she had CDs and she made me cassette tapes to play in my Walkman. Off she like burnt them off of her CDs, but she had the soundtrack to The Wizard of Oz too, and that was one of the ones yeah. that she made a cassette for me of, and I played that cassette a lot. Like I listened to the set of the music way more than I ever watched the movie. So <laughs> I may have been thinking of the movie and like, oh, it's not as good as the book because they didn't follow the book right. I still really liked the music. That's exactly how I feel about the sound of music because when I was a kid, I listened to the soundtrack of the sound of music way more than I listened to that movie. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the music of these movies is really what makes them so memorable. I can't, I can't believe I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, like I listened to the music a whole lot more than I watched the movie back then. Yeah, and, and that's half the appeal of the film right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There was even some... I thought there might have been a song on that album that was like a deleted scene from the movie because they, they included a song oh. on the album like The Jitterbug or something. You're right. It was called The Jitterbug. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a deleted scene in The Wizard of Oz called The Jitterbug Sequence. Yeah, and they kept that on the album. So anyone who's interested can just listen to the album and they can hear the music from that deleted scene. Hmm, yeah. It's kind of weird. I, I totally forgot about this. And now that we're talking about the movie, I'm just remembering all these things that I'd forgotten from back then. Oh, yeah. yeah. Also, if you listen to the dialogue in the finished version of The Wizard of Oz, you can actually hear the witch uh, make a reference to the Jitterbug sequence, even though she still mentions something that alludes to it. So if you, next time you watch that movie, listen for that and see if you can find it. Yeah, I think I might know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Another thing about the movie that has basically become iconic is the opening and how it starts out in black and white or sepia and then transitions into Technicolor when she gets into Oz. And I think there are things about that scene that people have tried to copy. And I know I've seen parodies of it, but there's something about the way they did it in this movie that I feel is like any other movie that ever tries to do something like that again, 
they just can't because it will never match the way they did it in this movie. Everything about it was too perfect to the point where I don't think you can do it again. Yeah, I agree. I agree that movie was original in that concept. That was the most creative user technicolor I've ever seen. The scene where Dorothy left the house and walked out to Oz is is a, is a moment that can be unmatched by any other movie because the, the use of Technicolor was so creative. They were using it to tell a story because they were using color to make Oz seem so much better than black and white Kansas. And they established the feeling of being in Oz by using color as a storytelling technique. So it was really creative. And I liked how they did that. And then another thing that you get after she gets to Oz in the first scenes is the witch, who basically, from what I can tell, is kind of responsible for the way we think of witches now, like the iconic Halloween witch. I don't think that witches were really thought of as being green and riding broomsticks before maybe the riding broomsticks but not like she's her look has now basically become the template for all halloween witches yeah that's that's every single time i think of a witch i think of the green skin and the pointy hat and the black like yeah totally i i'm haven't thought about that but i think you're right and margaret hamilton she's also basically become iconic because of this scene and i don't remember it's probably just like a youtube rabbit hole but i remember watching a clip within the last year of her going to visit mr rogers have you seen this where she goes and they have a talk about movie make-believe and she like brings out the costume and the hat and basically the whole point of this segment was to show kids that you shouldn't be scared of people in movies because she she said that pe- children would be terrified of her because she played the witch, but she wanted everybody to know that the witches pretend. <laughs> That's uh, vaguely familiar, actually. Like, I think I remember hearing something about Margaret Hamilton being on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And yeah, like, I, I, I never saw that episode, though. So this all this stuff you're saying is kind of new to me, but I remember hearing about it. And that, that is a brilliant idea, too, to introduce her on that show to let kids know it's okay. Movie characters aren't real. The witch isn't going to get you. And I like that. In the same scene with the witches is the munchkins. And it kind of struck me watching this time that there's something really familiar, not just because I've seen the movie, but the whole scene with the munchkins introducing themselves. It seems like... Was there a trend back in the 30s of having just random scenes of random characters introducing themselves and maybe like even through a parade? Because I'm thinking of like old cartoons and it seems like there are similar scenes in a lot of older cartoons of just random characters in a fantasy land just introducing themselves. They're not like main characters. They never come back. They're just, I guess, to show off how creative the filmmakers were. I don't know. The main, th- the main one that's coming to my mind right now is I can't think of the title of it. I think it's, it's one of my cousin's favorites about it's a Disney cartoon. There's like a gingerbread man 
and it's in some type of candy land and there's this parade. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, but like all these characters are introducing themselves and they're not main characters. They're just having a random parade and you just see all these crazy candy people. And the munchkin scene reminded me of that. Yeah, I think the cartoon is thinking of is the cookie carnival. I think that's what it was called. That sounds familiar. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right about that. That's, that is a common trope to have. The, to, it's sort of like they're using, a lot of times in older films, in, in those days, they used these, the idea of introducing characters, something really simple. Uh, to, to, like you said, to showcase the creativity of the filmmakers and to, and to show off the fantastic elements uh, in, in fantasy films. That actually happens a lot in, like, in not just not just Disney cartoons, but all kinds of fantasy cartoons too. That was a, that was a common thing. And uh, yeah, I never thought of that. Like having watched so many films and looking back on it, yeah, I noticed now that that actually has happened a lot. Yeah, I had never thought about it before. It just was a random thought that I had while watching that scene. It was like, this this seems really familiar in a way that is not because I've seen the movie. It just feels like something that, an element that I've seen before and just never noticed. Yeah, no, that was very observant. Yeah, you're right about that. So then after the whole Munchkin scene, we get all of the scenes of her meeting her friends. And the friends, I'm, this is probably something that everyone knows, but the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, they're all the same actors as the farmhands back on her aunt and uncle's farm. And I don't think I knew that as a kid, but it's an interesting observation now just to know that especially because you find out later that this was all a dream, that she's turned the people in her life subconsciously into these characters in her, I guess, fantasy land in her head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I also didn't know that the actors who played the farmhands were the same actors who played the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion. That was also like new to me when I found out my older brother was the one who just told me about that and I was surprised like I just like you when I was a kid no idea then later found out my mind was blown well she even says it at the end but I don't think I I still really made the connection that it was the same actors the only one that I really noticed was Professor Marvel who is the Wizard of Oz because he's just that's obvious like it's basically the same character yeah, exactly. Oh, that one was obvious, yeah. His, his whole scene, like, I'm still not completely sure if everything that happens in Emerald City, like, they meet several characters who are all played by the same actor, and I've never been 100% sure if that's supposed to be the wizard just pretending to be all these people in his own city, or if it's just a random coincidence and they just have the same actor play all of them. I'm kind of leaning towards it being the wizard just spying on people, like, pretending to be this all these weird characters. Uh, you know what? Because this movie is basically a dream sequence, I never think too hard on stuff like that. 
it's like okay in Dorothy's subconscious the doorman and he's also the Emerald City guard and ejection of the weather like yeah yeah no, yeah there's all kinds of and I just I figured okay this, it, it, it could be him in disguise or it could just be all of these characters who look the same but since it's a dream who knows like, I guess it doesn't matter mm-hmm. the whole scene in I guess from here on out is probably the main reasons why back when I was younger, I don't want to say I held the movie in contempt, but it was like I was judging it for not being the same as the book because this, there's a lot of differences before this, but there's like right here is where the book and the movie really diverge. I think because when they go to visit the wizard in the book, it's like, I don't, I don't want to say iconic because I mean, it's the book it's just like this is what happens. Everyone visits the wizard separately and everyone sees something completely different. And it's all like mostly horrifying. I think one of them sees a beautiful woman, but they're all really weird things that they see. And I remember reading the book as a kid and really wanting to see those weird things that they were seeing. And I wanted to see that in a movie and I think that was one of the things that upset me the most was because they all went in at the same time and they all saw a giant floating head. And that was really boring. I wanted to see like the monster and the giant lady and whatever else they were seeing. Yeah, no, that was, that's unfortunate. I, you know, you reminded me that that was how the book went. I forgot about that. That was completely different a version of what happens in the movie and yeah and luckily like as a person who watched the movie before i read the book i was not i didn't i didn't have the opportunity to be disappointed by that like you but mm-hmm. yeah so i was lucky i guess but i totally feel for you because that i if i read the book before i saw the movie i would also be interested in seeing that scene because I, I want to see what all those different versions of the wizard look like too now actually mm-hmm. well i think that i saw the movie first but i was really young when i first saw it and then i was a little older when i read the book and then watched the movie again and then i realized how much i was missing there are some differences that i think they actually work really well like the ruby slippers as opposed to them in the book it was silver shoes and the right. ruby slippers are basically iconic now. Like everyone thinks of ruby yeah. slippers when they think of the Wizard of Oz, and I don't think that probably any other filmed version can or would have ruby slippers because they are unique to this film. And it's I th- I feel like, and maybe this is dumb, but I feel like the ruby slippers are part of the reason why no other movie version really succeeds because it's just one of the changes that the movie made that people now so closely identify as being part of the story of the wizard of oz that any other version just feels kind of wrong because it doesn't have it i don't know no, that, yeah 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 that, that's it's, that's everything you just said that that is how it seems because the ruby slippers are completely iconic now and and if you don't have the ruby slippers in your version of the wizard of oz it, it's it's almost as if people would think you're crazy not to include mm-hmm. the ruby slippers like it, it's become a part of 
the myth of the laws now because of directly because of that movie. So that's it's true. And 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 which is kind of unfair because it's the movie sort of what in the original version but that's just the people love the nineteen thirty nine musical version of that story so much. It's just it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those stories that I think Rachel has said that she doesn't think that they can ever make a new version and have it hold up to be as good as the original. And normally, I would say that I don't agree with a thought like that, because I think that anyone can make a good version of any story. But this one, there's just so many things that are so completely unique to this movie that comparisons are inevitable and i feel like maybe in this one case she might be right like i hope that that's wrong because i would love to see somebody take on this story make it like totally true to the book and have it be amazing but i kind of don't think that that will ever happen i don't know like I, i don't usually think like that because i would love to see like i've said i i really like it when different people take stories put their mark on it make it their own and I would love to see a new version of this. It's like totally true to the book, but it's just, this one is just so iconic that I don't know if it's possible to do. Yeah. I, I, I agree with Rachel. I think I, I, I do think that it's possible to make a movie version of the book. Um, that's more faithful to the book and have it be good. But I do think that it's impossible for it to be better than the 1939 movie because that, because it will, to be fair, there aren't that many movies in general that are as good as the 1939 version of Wizard of Oz. So it's, it's not exact, it's not so much to do with the fact that no odds can compete as much as it has to do with the fact that no movie can really compete because the movie is just so great like in general so it's so it's, uh, it's an unfair it's an unfair like comparison really another thing about the book and movie that always stuck out to me as being so completely different i feel like in the book the witch is weirder and maybe even creepier than the movie version because i remember like in the movie like the way he wants proof, I don't think he straight up says he wants the witch dead, but he wants, that's basically what he wants because he wants them to bring him her broomstick. But in the book, he wants her eyeball. <laughs> like she has a magic eyeball and he wants the eye. And like that's a whole lot darker and creepier. <laughs> I feel like they probably intentionally made that change just because that was too creepy, probably. Probably. <laughs> but that's another yeah. thing that when I was a kid reading the book, I was like, man, that they totally missed the mark here. She doesn't have a magic eye. Yeah. And and the whole thing with the flying monkeys too, the flying monkeys weren't really her minions. In the book, she had a magic cap that gave her three wishes that were fulfilled by the monkeys. And once she used up the third wish, the monkeys were no longer serving her. And then Dorothy ends up getting the cap and she controls the monkeys towards the end of the book, which is another thing that I I thought was a totally missed opportunity because Dorothy could have had control of all these monkeys. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, there's so many things about the book that like they didn't use in the movie, but like, hey, okay, am I gonna am I gonna fault them for that? Because hey, the movie is pretty amazing. So yeah, mm-hmm. like, I I'm not hung up on any of those changes. It's fine with me. Yeah, the last big change that I really remember is once they've gone back and delivered the eye or the broomstick, depending on which version you're talking about. The reveal of the wizard and his gifts happen slightly differently. And in the book, I feel like he does slightly better job. Like he's still a fraud, but I feel like he does a slightly better job of actually giving people what they want. His things are basically placebos in either version. Like the things that he gives them are not really what they think they are. But like in the book, he actually removes the scarecrow's head and stuffs it full of things like, I think, pins and bran flakes. And I don't remember exactly why, (laughs) but there's something about that combination that, that was supposed to make the scarecrow smart. I don't remember why, <laughs> but I remember, uh, I remember reading the, the way he gave them the gifts and thinking it made a lot more sense than the way it happened in the movie. Right. Because the way it happened in the movie was just that they were given these uh, signifiers of mm-hmm. intelligence and heart and courage. And, and, and then so giving them these things, they gave them, the feeling that they were <laughs> that the scarecrow was able to say the square root of 100 and all this like smarter pants yeah. stuff and, and, and that they gave them the ability to think and they gave them the ability to have to love and they gave them the ability to be brave so that was uh, it was a little it was a little bit uh, not as colorful as the book <laughs> as the book sounded yeah I feel like though watching this version what it lacks in, I guess, imagination as to the kinds of things that he gives them, I feel like it makes up for in the wordplay and the way he talks about what he's giving them. Because the things that he says to them while he's giving them these things, yeah. it's hilarious. Like, it's yeah. a lot funnier than the book was, I'm sure. Like, I haven't read the book in ages, but I don't think the book is as funny with him giving these gifts to them as the way he's talking about these gifts when he's bestowing them upon them. Yeah, no, the writing in this movie is really good. They got some good writers for this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually reading about the film on Wikipedia, and E.Y. Harburg, like there was a lot of people writing on this film, and apparently his son, like this guy was the songwriter, but his son was talking about how he also wrote the dialogue in, and setting, setting up to songs that he was writing. So his dialogue is really what put the whole thing together. Because if uh, this was another thing that I, an interesting thing that I learned in that film class that I was talking about, there were a ton of directors and writers on this thing. Like, this movie really should not have worked as well as it did because there were so many people like pulling the movie in all sorts of directions, trying to build off what other people had done because people would come and they'd leave the project. And really the fact that the movie has become an iconic classic is kind of a miracle. But yeah, from what I'm reading with this guy, this EY Harburg and his son 
Ernie Harburg talking about what he did, his dialogue really, it pulled the movie together and made it feel like one coherent story because he gave it a voice. Like, I don't think it would have had that if you had just had this mismatched script pieced together from all these different writers and directors giving their own inputs. Like, I I have a feeling that even though he's not credited for this, I have a feeling just based on this, I guess, soundbite from his son, that he's the reason that the movie works so well. Yeah, you know what? I I, I feel like I heard that that guy, um, E.Y. Harburg, who wrote the lyrics uh, to the song, that's what he's credited for. Uh, he did contribute uh, he did contribute a lot of dialogue and, and, and a lot of people contributed dialogue, including the producer and the several directors and, uh, and even the producer's assistant. And, and, and also there are some directors who came in to supervise the movie and give their like thoughts and like, uh, like um, George Kukor, he he came in and he had a creative vision, and then the producer Mervyn Leroy liked that vision, and so he wanted to make sure that the director Victor Fleming followed it. And there's all kinds of other creative voices pulling in all kinds of directions. Victor Fleming left the project. Victor Fleming, like he was replaced by another director. It, you're right. It, it's it's the miracle that the movie came together so well because it, it there were a lot of people stirring the pot but it came out very coherent and and, and really uh, light, effortless seeming and mm-hmm. it's it really is amazing that it was able to do that because a lot of voices were involved in the creation of it. It, was, it took a while for the movie to even get made because of the constant changing of the directors and writers all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the time when that kind of thing happens on a movie, the movie basically is, it's its over before it begins. Like, it might get released, but it almost never is well-received because there's too many, I guess, competing voices. Even though it's not always, like, super apparent, it's, it's probably more of a subconscious thing. You can tell that there was no one cohesive vision for the movie. It's just too many people... Like the old yeah. adage, too many cooks spoil the broth. Too many people, exactly. one thing can ruin it. And yeah, it's it's kind of a miracle that The Wizard of Oz turned out so well. Yeah, I've seen some movies that had like two voices competing with each, with each other and just, just two people and it, and it seemed like the movie wasn't working. So, mm-hmm. um, fact, so I'm surprised that this many people it, it had a coherent vision and tone and feel that it, but it totally is a masterpiece. And I'm surprised that it, it's like not just a masterpiece, like one of the most famous films of all time. So it really did work. Yeah. I think probably the last thing that people don't really realize is completely different to the book is the fact that this whole thing is a dream. In the book, all of these things actually happened to Dorothy. But I think that I have read that they thought that it would be too, I don't know, too fanciful to say that all these things really happened. And they thought it would be more grounded in reality to make it a dream. And I guess in a way that is kind of true, but I think that's another thing that younger me was like, 
they totally changed this. It wasn't a dream. It really happened. <laughs> <laughs> so here was the thing about fantasy films in the 1930s. A lot of times they didn't do well other than like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And, so, and that was, and the success of that, the film adaptation of Wizard of Oz, but they were still nervous about releasing fantasy grounded. And one of the ways they did that was to make it a real place, then people wouldn't buy it and people would be too skeptical that this was a corny, like flying monkeys and talking trees. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be successful. So they, so they tried to make sure that people were aware with the dream because if you remember the scene when Dorothy goes to sleep and is caught in the tornado it's very clear that she is unconscious and that a dream is beginning so mm -hmm. they make sure the audience knows that and that's because they wanted to make sure people knew it was a dream yeah I, I'm kind of wondering if that's something that maybe they were overthinking a little bit because I mean it's fine like the choice to make it a dream is fine but I feel like I don't know. They're not giving the audience enough credit for being able to get lost in a story. Like, I think it would have worked just as well if everything had really happened to her. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. I think it would have worked just as well too. Like, I, hey, most of the things that film executives like contribute to films aren't the things that I would want that happened so i yeah i agree with that but yeah but you know how they are they just they're, they're putting money in the picture and they want it to be successful and, and any possible reason why it could do well just petrifies them so they just go with their gut and they just feel like yeah no it has to be a dream because i don't want people to walk out of the theater and like and then that's part of the reason why it's such a good film because they could they, you can tell that they're actually trying to appeal to adults too as well as kids yeah that is that is true because there's nothing really about this movie that feels like it's pandering in any way like they're going for a child audience it feels like they knew that all ages of people would watch this movie and they didn't try to make it for anyone specific and really I prefer movies like that. Like I, I understand the need for movies that are for a specific demographic, but my favorite movies always seem to be the ones that are for everyone. Like that's part of the reason I like Disney so much is because Disney movies really are movies that you can watch with really young kids or really old adults. Like the elderly, not like really old adults, whatever. <laughs> And I don't know, I guess that's my favorite type of movie, usually, is ones you can watch with anyone. Those are my favorite types of movies, too. You're absolutely right. That's why I'm such a Disney fan, too, because Disney is great at doing movies like this, movies that are for everyone that don't... It's like, if it's for kids and not adults, those are usually not... Uh, successful at the box office because like kids don't go to the movies alone. Kids go to the movies with adults and, and adults are the ones taking kids to the movies. So what's going to make the adult come back and take their kids to this movie is if they are also entertained just as much as the kids are. So that's why Disney and Pixar movies are so successful because they appeal to literally anyone of any age and those are usually 
the best movies, and they're usually the ones that become classics. Yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's pretty much all I've got. I think we've covered everything I wanted to cover. I think we've talked longer than I even expected us to. So do you want to let people know where they can find you if they want to look into more of your stuff? Yeah, find me on Twitter. That's where I hang out the most. I'm at eGenty2014. And I also regularly post blogs on my website, eJunkieBlog.com. And I have I have links down in the description too, so you'll easily be able to find him if you want to look him up. Okay, thanks for joining me. This is a lot of fun. I'm sure we'll do this again, and we'll see you next time. All right, see you later. Bye. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. Thanks again to Eli Sanza for joining me for the first episode of our series on the Wizard of Oz for every version ever. If you want more from him, I'll have his links in the description below. Next time on the show, my friend Rachel Wagner will be joining me, and we're going to be talking about two different versions of one adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. The 1978 film adaptation of the Broadway musical The Wiz, as well as the NBC Live musical version from 2015. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time on Every Version Ever. Thanks for listening.